All right, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll be, continuing on in this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Your bulletin says there's communion today, but that is a uh, misprint. The guy who does our bulletin, sometimes he gets a little, you know, woohoo, and uh, his uh, brain skipped a beat there, so please forgive him for that. That'll be next Sunday. Uh, second Sunday of the month, we'll have communion. And you see, uh, hopefully, the beautiful Christmas decorations throughout the building. Uh, we are in the Christmas spirit here. Thank you to Diana for putting that together for us. And Jerry. I think Jerry did some stuff, too. So, At, she, Diana said she needed a man's touch. So, <laughs> that's what decorations need is a man's touch there. So, um, I do want to announce to you, too, that we can give you a... Christmas present uh, from our church if you provide one part of it. Uh, I've been working the last few weeks getting all of our teaching from the last five years. Well, I should rephrase that. All of our sermons from the last five years and a lot of our Sunday school and Wednesday nights from the last few years, uh, getting those on files, hard well, not hard copies on our computer. So right now, all of our audio goes to a, a website. And that website stores all of our audio, our sermons and everything else. We don't know how much longer in our culture websites will be friendly to Christians to do that. So we've been getting all that back down off of the cloud, even though it's still there. We're getting copies off the cloud, and we actually have copies on the computer here. So if you bring just like a 16-gigabyte flash drive, you just need about 16 gigabytes, we can put all of that teaching on a flash drive for you, and you can have it. This goes back to the sermon series in 1 John or the sermon series in Proverbs that we did all the way back in 2015 uh, up to today. All of those sermons and then our studies on church history, uh, Old Testament biographies that we did last year where we looked at the lives of Samson and uh, all these other people in the Old Testament. Um, lots and lots of teaching, yours free, all in one place on a flash drive. You just got to provide the flash drive and we could do that for you, okay? So just let me know if that's something that you want. Uh, a little Christmas gift, not as exciting as the other Christmas gifts you will get, certainly, but still a Christmas gift nonetheless. Well, let's um, go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll start unpacking the text for today. Father, again, we thank You so much for all the good things You've given us, all the many ways You have blessed us and taken care of us this week and even this day the breath in our lungs, waking up, being able to drive here comfortably and, and sit here in this very convenient place to come together and to study Your Word. What an amazing gift. Lord, we thank You so much for this opportunity, and we ask that today as we look into Your Word and we see more from this letter of 1 Corinthians, that You would teach us and change us, that this wouldn't just be information, but that this would be truly uh, life-changing stuff, as Your Spirit, who inspired this Scripture, works in our hearts, God, cause us to grow and to be conformed to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way this morning of Your text, but that Your Word would be so clear to Your people, and that You would cause us, uh, again, all to grow together as a holy temple, where Your Holy Spirit dwells that we would grow together in love and in unity. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, looked at verses uh, 12 through 15. We were discussing the 
future event of the Christian's judgment and how the Christian's works will go through the fire, particularly those who have influenced and led God's church, that their works will be tested and not all of the works will remain. Some works will remain, and for those, there will be a reward. For those that are burnt up, the person will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as through fire. And I ended last week's message with an exhortation to you, an encouragement to you, that you do not have to build badly. As you've been equipped by God, you've been placed in the church, you've been given gifts, you at some level do influence the fellowship here. You don't have to build badly, but you can build well, you can serve well, you can honor God in all of these things. And you might see the title of today's message, that we are free to build in humble love. And that's really the key. Love, humble love. We are free to build and to serve that way. And that's a precious thing. Let's start into this passage today by reading verses 16 and 17. Uh, Perhaps we'll read 16 through 20. It says, do you not know that you, and this is plural by the way, so you can read that you all, Do you not know that you all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you all are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Paul starts this section off in verse 16 by asking them a rhetorical question. Do you not know? Do you not know? It's a rhetorical phrase that he uses implying that they should know. If you can remember from the letters to the Thessalonians and perhaps others, Paul wrote with the phrase, as you yourselves know, and then continued to explain something, something they already knew. But to the Corinthians, with all their problems, all the issues that were going on at the church in Corinth, he says, do you not know? (laughs) Do you not know? Implying that they should be aware of these things. And he says in verse 16, what he's instructing them in, Do you not know that you all are a temple of God? The local church is a local temple of God. This is an illustration that the pagans and the Jews in Corinth would be very familiar with. Remember, Corinth is in Greece. Remember, Greeks have lots and lots of gods, and those gods need a place to live. You got to put the God together. I got caught up in my cord there. You put the cod together, and then you put him in a little box, and that's his house. And you put gods in these temples, and these houses, and these shrines. So the pagans were very familiar with this idea of temples. But more importantly, the Jews were familiar with the temple. The Jews were familiar with the temples of the Old Testament, those that the men were instructed to build, where God would meet with men in the holy place inside of the temple. And this teaching applies to both pagans and to Jews in their understanding, as they are now Christians, that you all come together in the church as believers in Jesus Christ, creating a new temple, a temple of God, an amazing teaching. We are the temple of God. God has built us. 
He chose us. He picked us out. He took us and He redeemed us. And then He equipped us and He has fitted us all together as a body, as a temple. And He dwells in us collectively. At first blush, when you read this verse in verse 16, you might read it as you individually. Don't you know that you individually are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you individually? These things are true and these things are taught in 1 Corinthians, just not in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what Paul is saying is that the church together collectively is a temple and that the church together collectively houses the Spirit of God. It's not enough just to say that we all have the Spirit and that's it. It's important to recognize we come together and the Spirit dwells among us. That's in one of our songs, the song, Is He Worthy? Does the Spirit move among us? And we affirm He does collectively as the church. And there is humble holiness in view here. Setting up the argument for the rest of the letter, Paul is essentially saying what Gordon Fee has said here, God is holy, His temple is therefore also holy, set apart for His purposes. And as God's temple, the only temple the living God has in Corinth, the Corinthians are by implication also to be holy. And as this letter reveals, this was not one of their strong suits. (laughs) I liked that part that he added there. The temple is holy. Look at that in uh, verse 17. The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God has redeemed us and put us together as a temple to grow in humble holiness. He has already declared us holy. Back at the very start of the letter, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, those who have been sanctified, those who have been set apart, those who have been declared holy. The temple of God is holy. That is what you are. That's your identity as a Christian. You are holy because God has redeemed you. He has given you His holiness. And together, as His church, we are holy. We may not feel holy, we may not look holy, we may not smell holy, right? But we are. And we are because God has said so. God who spoke all things into existence by the Word, His power, He speaks us into this church and says, you're holy. And that's enough, isn't it? If God says it, it is enough. We are holy, and so we are to be holy. We are to treat this local temple of God with reverence. We've been set apart as a sanctified body, as a holy temple, not to be tampered with, not to be destroyed or brought off course. The local temple, the local church, is to be protected as precious. God views His temple as precious. And so we are to protect the local church as we grow together in love. And we find in these verses that those who seek to destroy God's temple, what's going to happen to them? They themselves will be destroyed. Look with me again at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Those are strong words. What terrifying words. To be destroyed and to be destroyed by God? What a sober warning. In view here, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, what he has in mind about what might destroy that temple in Corinth, 
is this injecting of worldly wisdom into the church to pull the church away from the cross, to pull the church off, off course so that they would be focused on their own ideas, their own wisdom, their own intellect, apart from God's Word, apart from the cross of Christ. And this happens today. It happens in many churches today. There are many distractions that pull us away from the simple wisdom of the cross. There are many things that people like to tell church leaders to do that have nothing to do with the gospel, that have nothing to do with what Jesus has done, that has nothing to do with lifting Him up in glory and honoring Him. They're all distractions. And the man-centered, pragmatic philosophy of the church in Corinth and the churches today is condemnable. It's worthy of condemnation. Any man-centered strategy, any man-centered philosophy, anything that focuses on the creature rather than the Creator is worthy of condemnation. And God says that anyone who comes into His church and pulls the church away from the gospel by focusing on man and lifting man up and, and building man up, he will be destroyed, and God will see to it Himself. We do well to remember James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, because teachers will incur a stricter judgment, a stricter judgment. Teachers in the temple of God, the local church, who pull that local church away, who lead them away from the cross, they will face utter destruction. For godly teachers, there will be a reward, we just read last week in the passage above. But for the wolves who come into the church, and I believe this is talking about wolves, I don't believe this is talking about believers, I think we're talking about uh, unbelievers who creep into churches and pull them away, and there's a lot of that happening today. I believe that it's saying here that those wolves will be destroyed by God Himself in hell. We need to be careful about who is teaching and who we let influence us and how we consider these things in the church. Then shining the light on the church as a whole, Paul goes on to say in verse 18, a new paragraph, let no man deceive himself. Let no man deceive himself. And I want to talk about self-deception for a few moments. I've been fascinated with this subject for a while now. It is a very fascinating phenomenon, self-deception. And I want to say from the outset that self-deception will destroy you and self-deception will destroy your church. Self-deception among the people is lethal. And it's a very, very strange sin, self-deception. Doug Wilson puts it this way in the form of a question, how is it possible for me to lie to me and me buy it? <laughs> I thought that was a very apt way of putting that. Self-deception. How is it possible for me to lie to me and then me buy it? Self-deception. An amazing thing. We can think of self-deception as spiritual suicide. A lot of Christians have a hard time counseling those affected by suicide and how to condemn suicide or not condemn suicide because on the one hand, those who die through suicide are victims, right? They're victims. They've died. Yet on the other hand, 
those who have died through suicide were also their own transgressor. They're the ones who offended. They were the offender and the victim. Both things are happening at once, and in self-deception is something that largely takes place in the mind as it leads our heart astray. We are both the offender and the victim. It's confounding, but it is lethal, and it's a horrific transgression. Most often, we see self-deception as we convince ourselves that our pride is actually humility. We don't even see our pride, or we see it rather, and we see it just as humility instead of seeing it for what it is. It's lying to ourselves about the end result of our sin, the end result of our selfish pursuits, lying to ourselves about it, saying, yeah, this, this prideful way, it will actually end up in a good place. This rebellious and sinful way, this will actually lead to blessing. That's self-deception, to be utterly turned around about what is true and right and good. And we are all susceptible to this, each and every one of us. And in psychology, there have been a number of studies that have brought this to the forefront. Um, and I want to be careful. Anytime I mention the word psychology, I want to clarify things. And I just want to say that psychology, though it can provide us with amazing observations, secular psychology can never provide us with any solutions to any of those observations. And so I will sometimes reference some psychological study or something of that nature merely for the observation, not for any of their answers to the problems, because I have a very strong conviction that secular psychology can provide nothing for the Christian. I wanted to make that clear. Uh, All of that said, there is something in psychology known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect, named for a couple of guys. And what these men have found through their studies, and perhaps you've experienced this in your own life, the more incompetent people are, the less they are aware of their own incompetence. The more incompetent people are, the less they are aware of their own incompetence. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, Two men, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, they're professors, they discovered this through several studies, but in one of the studies, they gave their subjects a series of cognitive tasks to do, some really tough brain things to do, and said, now, after you're done, we want you to evaluate your own work. And only about 25% of all of those who engaged in those cognitive tasks estimated somewhat accurately their abilities. A very small percentage underestimated themselves, and somewhere around 70% of people way overestimated their own cognitive abilities, thinking that, yeah, I'm not as bad as what someone might say I am. I'm I'm pretty good at this stuff, when actually, not so much. Uh, The Dunning-Kruger effect. In another study, participants were offered a monetary reward if they could convince somebody that they had a high IQ, and all the participants had a relatively average, high, or average IQ. And so they would go out and they would bring in subjects and say, okay, you guys are going to have this conversation, and at the end, if that person can believe truly that you have a high IQ, we'll give you some money. That's the test. And what they found is the more convincing people were about you know, saying they're smart, the more they started to believe it themselves. At the end of the study, they found that these people who entered in thinking, yeah, I'm probably just average, after they had convinced a number of people, 
they started to believe themselves. I could join the Mensa Society. Yeah, I'm pretty smart. I'm brilliant. When it actually wasn't the case. Now, I want you to take that phenomenon and apply that to a works-based religion where it's all about convincing everyone around you that you are righteous. It's all about convincing everybody around you that you are really, you've got it together, that you're gifted, you're talented, that you are on your way to the highest kingdom, and everybody knows it. You eventually start to believe it yourself. You forget that you're a sinner. You forget that you're in need, desperate need of forgiveness, and you believe that you yourself are a wonderful, perfect person. The New Testament illustrates this in James. James chapter 1, verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, the point James is making there in context has to do with the importance of us watching what we say, how we use our God-given mouths. But the overarching idea found here in this verse is that a religious person who acts this way is actually a devil, but he himself thinks, I'm a religious person. He's self-deceived. He has deceived his own heart. And in the New Testament, we see also that philosophy is especially deceitful among people. In Colossians 2.8, it says that we shouldn't be taken captive by philosophy, and it's paired right there with empty deception. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deception. The philosophies of men, the waxing eloquent of men, the coming up with our own ideas, the, the pragmatic decisions that we make can be especially deceiving among the church. So is so many of the modern church strategies that are out there, the crossless strategies to build a little kingdom or to perhaps reach people, they might say, or in Corinth, to just get smarter and build your intellect. It's crossless, pragmatic, wicked, empty deceit and philosophy. So when we read in verse 18... Let no man deceive himself. We need to take that as a warning to get out of our own heads. We must get out of our own heads and not lead ourselves. The blind leading the blind, that's a passage from the New Testament. The blind leading the blind, well, self-deception is you as a blind person leading yourself. You need to get out of your own head. We need the Word of God to correct us. That's our escape is to look to God's revelation, the Scriptures. We need to read the Scriptures ourselves, and we need Word-centered counselors in our lives to get out of our own minds and to get out of our fallen thinking. Because, as John MacArthur has said, Christians are no wiser in their flesh than our unbelievers. If we are just in our flesh, we are no wiser than any unbeliever out there. But what do we have? We have the Spirit of God, we have the Word of God, and we have each other. And if we are all focused on the Word together, then we can get out of our own heads. That's our escape. And the answer in how we live really is humble love. Verse 18 again, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, 
He must become foolish so that he may become wise. We have to become foolish, meaning we must humble ourselves by focusing on that foolish cross. You remember in chapter 1, maybe turn back there and look over chapter 1, the last half of that chapter, the cross is considered foolishness to the world. The cross is considered weak to the world. And yet, how do we become wise? We attach ourselves to that foolish and weak cross. In turn, we become wise. In turn, we become strong. We have to humble ourselves and find our unity at the foolish cross, turning from and repenting of our man-centered thinking, the thinking that lifts us up, that builds us up, that whole self-esteem movement that's out there, buying into that and speaking truth over your life so that you feel better about yourself. That's not where we find our unity. We find our unity, we find our wisdom in the cross. And this wisdom that's spoken of here in verse 18 is real wisdom given by God centered around Christ-like love. What do we find as we move closer and closer to the gospel, as we apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives, to look for the cross and all that we're doing? What do we find? We find the love of Christ. We see application for the love of Christ in every area. We find Christ-like love, humble, gentle love. Again, from the book of James, chapter 3, verse 17, James gives us a great definition of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Humble love, that's the answer. That's the wisdom of God. Humble love. Repenting of all man-made efforts, repenting of all of our man-made reasoning. That's what you did when you first believed in Christ. When you first became a believer, you didn't bring your own ideas and say, you know, God, I, I really like what you were doing in this uh, dying and resurrecting thing, but I've got some, some of my own ideas that I think would be really good to really jazz up this message. That's not how you got saved. If you think you got saved that way, you need to repent for, truly for the first time and believe. When we came to Christ, we recognized that we were bringing nothing to the table. We recognized that there was nothing in us that we could offer God, and there was nothing in us that God would see as being worthy and good. But when we first came to Christ and first believed, we understood that we were helpless. We understood that there was nothing in us worthy, and in fact, there was only things that are worthy of condemnation in us, that we would be condemned by God. Yet we understood that in the cross, God condemned His only Son. That in the cross, Jesus was punished for our sake, in our place. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel message we believe, not thinking we contributed anything. Therefore, in all that we do after that moment of salvation, we continue to incorporate the cross. We continue to focus on the gospel. We don't start there and then add our own ideas on top of that. But in all that we do, we're focused on what Jesus has done. 
It's the most important thing. Verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before Him. In chapter 1, Paul wrote that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. It's something that God is actively doing, confounding the wise of this world, making foolish the wise of this world. And here we get a different perspective saying, as the foolishness of the world is before God, which they call wise, God really does condemn it as foolishness. He evaluates it as foolishness. He judges it as foolishness. He's emphasizing the point in this letter that in the cross, all things are turned on their heads. What the world calls weak, Christians call strong. What the world calls foolish, Christians call wise. In the cross, it's all confounded. It's all turned around. And that is to be reflected as we grow and serve in God's church. As we continue to build in this church, as we are instruments in God's hands, building up the church in love, we are to do it humbly with His wisdom, not with our own wisdom. May we never lead His holy temple into behaviors and activities that He judges as foolish. How terrifying is that idea? That you as an influencer in this church would be steering the body or any member of the body toward foolishness, something that rises up before God and He condemns. May we never do so. God is over all, and all men are accountable to Him. We see that in verses 19 and 20, as Paul quotes Job in Psalm 94. He says in verse 19, it is written, God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. This is from the book of Job. It's a hunting illustration. God catches the wise in their own craftiness as they try to escape Him, as they try to run away, as they try to find a path that will get them away from this one who's inevitable, they can't get away from. As they try, He's going to catch them in their own craftiness. And in verse 20, quoting Psalm 94, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Their reasonings are utterly useless because they reason apart from Him. They reason apart from the cross. They reason apart from the gospel. And heaven forbid any local temple of God would be destroyed by that type of thinking. We need to have God-centered thinking in all that we do. We need to have word-directed programs and word-directed conversations and word-directed counseling in all that we do. Our outreach, our preaching, our teaching, all of it needs to be based on the gospel and the Word of God. And as much as is possible, there are things we recognize here Having a building, having padded chairs, having bulletins, those are nice, and the Word doesn't direct us in any of these things. But heaven forbid that the Word would condemn us in any of those things. Let us seek to be pleasing to Him in all that we do, because this is His temple, and He's called it holy. Therefore, it needs to be protected and built up in humble love. So the conclusion of this is obvious, verse 21 Let no one boast in men. (laughs) Isn't that an obvious conclusion here? 
that no man is worthy of boasting in. Let no one boast in men. And we have to be reminded of this often. We need to be reminded ultimately, or first and foremost, to not boast in ourselves. That's our mega temptation, is to boast in ourselves and to think highly of ourselves instead of having the attitude of Christ and considering ourselves servants. We often want to think highly of ourselves. And Paul goes on here to make some amazing theological claims, continuing to explain why we should not boast in men. And I loved this study. When I first read through that this week, I didn't really know what to make of it at first blush, these last few verses of the chapter. And as I studied, and particularly the commentary of Gordon Fee, which was very helpful, um, the best of my commentaries this week was Gordon Fee. As I read through that, um, I just loved this passage. I came to love it. And I hope I can explain it clearly so that you can love it too. Um, But let's read through it, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So as the Corinthians repudiated, repented of their own self-deception and the lies that they believed, they could then start to realize God's gift as explained in these verses, that they actually own all things, that all things belong to them. Now, to start uh, getting our arms around this really big concept, I want to give a refresh of our inheritance, a little bit of a refresh as to what it means that we are inheritance in, or uh, that we are um, heirs in Christ. God has freely given us all things in Christ, and I hope you know that truth. I hope you believe that truth, that in Christ, all things have been freely given to us by God Himself. We are heirs of an entire kingdom. We are heirs of a kingdom. Now, I know you're living your life in December of the year 2020, and it doesn't feel like you're an heir of a kingdom. But remind yourself, there's just light and momentary affliction right now. This life is but a vapor. It's a blip. You're an heir of a kingdom. And you, you will enjoy that kingdom forever and ever. It's incredible. I mean, this, this needs to be a source of hope and encouragement for us that this isn't all that there is, but we are heirs for something coming, for something that will last so much longer, something that will last for all eternity where there is no sin or sickness or death. But instead, we just get to enjoy the benefits of Christ's redemption for all eternity to the glory of God. What a wonderful day that will be. And I want to give you several verses on this. Uh, Don't necessarily try to keep up and turning to all these. You can just write them down. Starting with Matthew 25, Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats judgment. And we won't go into the timing of that or uh, who's involved in that or anything right now. I just want you to see the concept. Matthew 25, verse 33, it says, Jesus will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And verse 34 The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hey, this applies to the Christian. If you're a believer, a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Now, we know this isn't for our glory. It's not a kingdom prepared for our glory. It's a kingdom prepared for God's glory. God does all things for His glory. But as far as participating, who are the participants? You! This kingdom was prepared for you to participate in from the foundation of the world. Wow. Wow. Romans, Romans 8, starting in verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. We are heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ. How highly exalted is that? That's as high as you can go. A fellow heir with Christ. And down in uh, verse 31, 831, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. Freely! Not under compulsion. Freely, lovingly, joyfully. Because we're in Christ. Amazing, amazing thought. Two more verses. Galatians 3.29. Three more verses, rather. Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You're an heir according to the promise of God. And Galatians 4, 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You have an inheritance, an inheritance of a kingdom and an inheritance of all things that will freely be given to you by God. And then finally, Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 6, talking about the mystery of the church, Jews and Gentiles together, and Paul says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Heirs, partakers through the gospel because of your faith in Christ and His finished work. You are an heir. You are set to receive an inheritance. Because of His work of redemption, we as Christians are both in Him and heirs with Him. We are in Christ and we are fellow heirs with Christ, an amazing thought. And here in our passage today, Paul lists specific things that belong to the Corinthians. Look at verse 21 again, where it says, For all things belong to you. That could literally be translated, All things are yours. All things are yours. And, and think of this church again. We, we don't want to lose context of who the Corinthians were, namely, a mess. <laughs> the Corinthians were a mess. The Corinthians had all kinds of problems. We're going to address so many things in this book, and I look forward to seeing if we still have a church when we're done. We're going to talk about all sorts of things in this series because they were a mess. And Paul says at the beginning of his letter, you're holy. You've been sanctified. And he calls them a holy temple here. And he says, you are heirs with Christ and all things are yours. All things are yours. He lists off the apostles and servants, uh, namely Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. These were ones that the Corinthians at some level had interacted with, and these are the same ones listed back in chapter 1. 
chapter 1, verse 12, if you remember this verse, just a page over, where he talks about the divisions in the church. And he says that there are some of you saying, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, and another, I am of Cephas. They were saying, I belong to this person. Some, this group says, I belong to Paul, and this group says, I belong to Apollos or Cephas or whoever. And Paul says, actually, let me turn that around. They belong to you. You don't belong to them, but they belong to you. It's all turned on its head. The world says, boast in men. Pick out some men that you will choose to follow and adhere yourself to and, and label yourself by. Pick some men and lift them up and make it your identity. And Paul says, no, that's not how it is. All things have been freely given to you. Don't enslave yourself to a man. Don't enslave yourself to a faction led by another fallen creature. All things belong to you. He says the world here in this passage, the world belongs to you. In uh, verse 22, the world, this is the word cosmos, meaning all of creation. It's not talking about worldliness. Worldliness doesn't belong to us. We're separate from worldliness. But the world itself, all of creation, belongs to you. No big deal. Belongs to you, Christian. What a thought. It's an astonishing teaching. In God's image, we are designed to rule and to reign in creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, those made in His image. That's us. The angels weren't made in the image of God. Cats definitely weren't made in the image of God. All things are ours as we're redeemed in Christ. And he goes on to say, it just gets more and more amazing. It's this amazing crescendo at the end of this passage. Not just the world, but life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. Life and death and time itself belong to you. Wow. Living and dying are not to own you as a Christian. You own living and dying. Time doesn't own you as a Christian. Time belongs to you. All things belong to you. The things that so often enslave men, other men, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, these things that just own men's thoughts, that take captive men's hearts, that lead men wherever, they don't own the Christian. They all belong to us, freely given to us. And I have a whole paragraph here from Gordon Fee, and I'm going to repeat certain parts of it because it's just beautiful the way he put this. He writes, because in Christ Jesus... Both life itself and therefore the future are ours. Death is ours as well, as is the present. We die, but life cannot be taken from us. We live the life of the future in the present age, and therefore the present has become our own possession. For those in Christ Jesus, what things were formerly tyrannies are now their new birthright. Let me read that again. Think of this. For those in Christ Jesus, what things were formerly tyrannies are now their new birthright. 
our possession, the things that used to haunt us and enslave us. It's now our possession. He goes on and says, This is the glorious freedom of the children of God. They are free lords of all things, not bound to the whims of chance or the exigencies of life and death. The future is no cause for panic. It is already theirs. The future is no cause for panic. It's already yours as a Christian. Oh, I love that. Love that teaching. The reality of our possession of all things in Christ is only realized by us when we reject those lies that we believe. The lies that our pride is actually humility. That's a lie, and the Word will point it out, and Word-centered counselors will point it out. The lie that we should pick factions and we should fight against each other with crossless strategies, with empty deceit, that's a lie. And the Word and Word-centered counselors will point that out. The lie that we should fear, that we should fear the future, that we should fear death, that's a lie. And the Word and Word-centered counselors will point that out. And we can grow and build together in humble love when we permit the Word to expose our self-deception. We will grow in humble love. Let our focus then, as we conclude, be on this final statement, verse 23. All things belong to you. What a, what a thought. And then verse 23, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. We're secure in this. Your identity as a possessor of all things is secure because the way you got that identity is through the work of Christ. Christ gave it to you, and you are secure in Him, and Christ is secure in God. We belong to Christ. The Roman Sunday school class just began chapter 6 this morning, and Romans 6 talks about our identity in Christ. I love that chapter. We are possessed by God in Christ, and our identity that we find must be wrapped up in Christ's work, His atoning death in our place for our sins on the cross, His resurrection raised to newness of life, so are we when we believe. And His ascension, where He's at the right hand of the Father, so we are there. We have been exalted with Christ in the heavenly places, Scripture says. Our identity is truly, fully, thoroughly, utterly wrapped up in Christ's work, His salvific work on our behalf. And Christ belongs to God, meaning the Son's work was done in submission to the Father. The Son joyfully, willfully submitted to the work the Father had for Him. And He went to the cross. He emptied Himself. He made Himself a servant. And He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This text here isn't speaking of Christ as a creature like us, that Christ isn't God, but Christ is some creature of God who belongs to God. That's not what Paul had in mind at all. Paul has written... Plenty of great statements on the person of Jesus Christ in his letters. But what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, submitting to His Father, has given us this new identity as possessors of all things that we can freely build 
the holy temple in humble love as instruments in God's hand. The Son of God submitted to the Father, and through Jesus, God becomes our Father. We are totally secure in what Christ has done, and we are free to build up the holy temple in humble love. God, again, we thank You, because this is Your work. This isn't our work. This is what You have done. You have been faithful to us in Your grace and in Your mercy, in Your great patience and kindness. You have saved us, and You have grown us in truth. We ask for more of that growth, that our hearts would be renewed day by day, that by Your Spirit we would be refreshed each morning, knowing that Your mercies are new every day, knowing that what is set before us is kingdom work, that we would begin that kingdom work here and now as heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, as we are free to build in humble love. Give us that vision, give us that motivation that we would see the world with gospel lenses for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.